The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? You good? You know what? There's so many exciting things going on at Story City. Gosh, it's just, it was awesome yesterday to see uh, our church own Granada Hills yesterday. It served so many families. It was really, really cool. Thank you if you volunteered yesterday. It was really, really an amazing time. A lot of exciting things going on. I'm super pumped about Superhero Sunday next Sunday for all of our kids. My kids are getting their costumes ready. It's going to be awesome. And uh, we're going to have a great time next Sunday. Well, if you're excited to be here, like I'm excited to be here, take your Bible. Open it up to Luke chapter 6 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We're going to put it on the screens. And if you don't have a Bible, if you came this morning and maybe you're new to church, we'd love to give you a Bible and you can grab one of those after the service at the Connect table. Luke chapter 6 is our text, but let me do this before we dive into the last week of this series we've been in in Luke. Let me pray for us. Can we pray together? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for today. This is your day, the day you have made. Let us not take it for granted. The next few minutes together. God, I pray you use the words that are said, the words that are read, and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said amen and amen. Well, I... I've known a lot of you guys. This is uh, we're, we're in year three and a half as a church, and it's really cool to hear some of your stories, get to know who some of you are. And uh, I don't know how often, I don't think often I, I tell you a little bit of my story, but when I was 17 years old, I came to faith in Christ. I was at a winter retreat weekend, and the Lord used a man who was preaching the gospel to speak to my heart. God divided my heart, convicted me of sin and righteousness, and I gave my life to Jesus when I was 17 years old. And when God saved me, I, I had this desire to be used by God. I, I, I wanted God to use me, and I, I didn't know what that looked like, and quite honestly, I didn't, even, I didn't know if that was possible. And uh, so the, the month after I got saved, I had a friend that I used to hang with, and we do a lot of things that were illegal as teenagers, and, uh, and, and, and I wanted him to know what I had found. And so I remember going to this party and dragging him out and saying, you need to know Jesus. You need to know Jesus. I just wanted to be used by God. I still want to be used by God, but I, I didn't know. It, is that possible? Is it even possible for a kid like me? You, you don't know all of my story, but I, I was a, adopted. Uh, my birth parents uh, couldn't afford me. They left me at the hospital. My adopted parents picked me up at the hospital in Georgetown, South Carolina. Uh, my, my adopted father was a mechanic. Uh, n- nothing special about my adopted father. I was the first person in my family to go off to college. Um, I hardly had left the state of South Carolina before I was 18 years old. I'd never boarded a plane until I was 23 years old. I wanted to be used by God, but I thought, is it possible? How can God God use me. I'm just nobody from a nobody town and a small town and not an important family, but I want God to use me. And I don't know if you've ever had that thought as well. God, I just really want to be used. I, I want you to take what I have and who I am and use me however you want. And so even today, as a 41-year-old pastor, I, I, I still have those thoughts. God, can you still use me? God, can you still use us? Can you still use our little part in the kingdom of God here in the largest state in America, the fifth largest economy in the world? Everywhere I look, there are successful people, successful business people, successful entertainment people. How can you use me? How can you use us And before I moved out to um, Los Angeles in 2014, 
I came out on several tours t- to see the city and talk to people who were church planting leaders in our state. And I remember very clearly one church planter uh, leader in our state looked at me and he said, matter of factly, and I quote, do not expect a church to grow in a secular city like Los Angeles. And then I remember very clearly a conversation with another church planting leader in our state before I moved here. Remember, I'm from Atlanta at the time. And this church planting leader looked at me and he said, you know, we really want to raise up indigenous pastors and church planters in our state. And here I am. A man with a really good job in a really great church who's put his yes on the table to be used by God in a city like Los Angeles. And I'm 36 years old and I'm wondering again, can God really use me? Can God use us? And I still have those thoughts today and occasionally I still ask those questions of God. But what I've come to realize is that The God we read in the pages of Scripture is the God who took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed 5,000 people. He can still use an ordinary, common, uneducated, unimportant nobody like me, and he can still use us. And that's what I want us to see today. We're going to finish this series in Luke chapter 6 today. And if you were here last week, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the context for what we're going to read today, because today's passage straightforward. Uh, there, there's nothing, there's nothing, you know, we don't have to dig very deep to see what's going on in this passage today. But if you remember last week, we have this momentous occasion in the life and the ministry of Jesus. He knows his time is coming to an end on earth. In less than two years, Jesus is going to face a sentence of death. And he knows when I leave, the question in his mind is, how is the message going to live on? Who am I going to entrust the message of the gospel? Who am I going to entrust what he knows to be a worldwide movement? Who am I going to entrust that message to? And so last week we saw in verse 12 and 13 of Luke chapter 6, Jesus peels away for a solid night, for an entire night. And the Bible says he prays all night. Jesus spends the night praying. What's he praying about, Pastor Matt? He's praying. Well, he's probably praying about a lot of things, but certainly one of the things he's praying about is who am I going to choose to carry on the message that God has entrusted to me that I'm supposed to pass on to them. And so this is an important moment in the life of Jesus. You want to get this selection right. And when Jesus comes out of this all-night prayer meeting, We see this list of people, like if we lived in this time and we knew these people, we would be entirely unimpressed. Jesus has chosen a group of unusual, ordinary, common, uneducated, unimportant nobodies to take the message and allow it to live on after he leaves this earth. And if you read the list and you knew the people during that day, you would say, wow, this is really, really unimpressive. In fact, if you were a leadership expert of the day, this would not be the list that you would choose. Probably not another person in the entire world would have chosen the same list. Yet these are the people that Jesus is going to entrust his authority his power, and his message to, and it's going to literally transform the world. And so today I want us to see just how unusual 
and ordinary these people are that Jesus chose. And I believe what we're going to see today is that God still takes very unusual people and God uses them in great ways. Luke chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 12. These two verses are not going to be on the screen, but I want to remind you of the context here. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12, the scripture says, one of those days, Jesus was going out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God, verse 12. Then verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he designated as Apostles. Now, here's the list of apostles, and we're going to see a lot of scripture this morning because we can't discern it from just this passage alone. But these are the men that he chose. Verse 14, Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew. You remember Matthew? Josh spoke on Matthew just a few weeks ago. He was a tax collector. Matthew, Thomas. You remember Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus. Simon. There were two Simons. This is not Simon Peter. This is another Simon. And listen to the description here. Who was called the Zealot. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Judas, son of James. This is not Judas Iscariot. There's two Simons, two Judases. And we see at the very end. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. It's impossible to overlook the fact this morning. It's impossible to overlook the fact this morning that none of these men seem qualified in even the smallest of way. And I want you to hear some of the flaws and the faults of these men that we see just using the pages of Scripture. I want you to consider for a moment Peter. Consider for a moment Peter. One commentator said, Peter is the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. One man said, Peter was always broadcasting when he should have been tuning in. You remember the day when Jesus said, I'm about to leave this earth. I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. Remember the day? Remember what Peter, what happened here with Peter? Listen to it. Matthew chapter 16. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and here it is, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside. Listen to Peter. Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned, Jesus did, and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but you're setting your mind on man's interest. That's about as brutal as it gets. It's about as brutal as it gets. Peter actually had the audacity to try to talk Jesus out of the cross. Trying to talk Jesus out of the cross, to which Jesus actually called him Satan. Now, I'm not an expert in apostle selection. I wasn't consulted when Jesus chose the apostles. But listen, I would think that you'd want to stay away from people whom Satan uses, yes? Or who could forget Satan's statement at the Last Supper? Jesus is sharing a meal with his apostles in the upper room. Matthew 26, 33. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. (laughs) Famous last words, right? 
In other words, in other words, Lord, I don't know about all these other cowards in this room, but I'm just telling you right now, I will never leave you and nothing could make me fall away from you. Famous last words, right? You should have added the caveat. Unless I'm standing around a fire in a crowd of people and a servant girl says, this is one of Jesus' followers. If that happens, then I'm out, Jesus. <laughs> you remember the monumental failure of Peter. Peter was impulsive. He was loud. He was overconfident. Peter was prone to failure. Peter was prone to mistake. We haven't even talked about Peter trying to walk on water and failing. We haven't even talked about Peter. Remember this scene? Jesus is in the garden before he's taken away, and Peter literally tries to take the head off of a soldier in the garden. Peter talked too much. Peter talked too much. He listened way too little, and he made incredibly impulsive decisions. But the Lord chose him. In fact, the Lord picked him as the leader. <laughs> the Lord picked him as the leader. Matthew's gospel says he is the first, not chronologically the first chosen, but he is first in the scope of leadership among these 12 apostles. Every time you see these lists of apostles mentioned, Peter is always the first. The Lord made this guy the leader. Think about James and John for a moment. James and John, affectionately, brothers, affectionately known as the sons of thunder. There's a name you don't want. John would go on and he would become known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John would also write letters and he would encourage churches and, and believers to, to love one another. But, but we just need to point out today, that's not how it started out with James and John. So there was this day when people were performing miracles in the name of Jesus, and listen to what James and John said, Mark chapter 9. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent them because he was not following us. And Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me. And then there's this moment, which we're going to see here in a few months, where, where Jesus finally sends the apostles out in Luke chapter 9. And as the apostles go out, they're in this town of Samaritans, and they try to lodge in this town of Samaritans, and the Samaritans will not have them. Listen to what happens to James and John, Luke chapter 9. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him. Why? Because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Really? Wow. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. James and John, hot-headed. James and John were quick-tempered. You would like to think, you would like to think the men you're going to entrust this world-changing movement to would have a basic understanding that the goal is to save people, not to kill people, right? But we have James and John. Consider Thomas for a moment. Thomas is usually referred to as Doubting Thomas. It's really not fair. Thomas should really be referred to as Thomas the Pessimist. <laughs> Thomas never thought anything was going to go right. Thomas always thought things were going to go 
badly. He never thought things were going to work out. John chapter 11, verse 14. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also so that we may die with him. Well, there's optimism for you. There's the glass half full perspective for you. John 14, we see Thomas again. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may also be, and you know the way where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And then Jesus has completed his ministry. He's been crucified. He's been buried. And he rises to the right hand of the Father. And we probably all know the famous scene where Thomas gets the label in John chapter 20. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. If you're choosing a squad, I would imagine this is the type of negative energy you want to stay away from. The pessimist. These people are destructive to a team. They bring the mood down. This is probably not the type of energy you want to bring to a group of 12. But that was Thomas. And then there's Philip. Philip is the analytical one of the group. Philip is the engineer. He's, Philip is the accountant. Philip is always planning. Philip is always calculating. But Philip is rarely seeing through the eyes of faith. When Jesus tells his disciples to feed the 5,000, Philip says, Philip answered him, John chapter 6, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Philip had already done the math. He'd already calculated it in his head. He knew this, this cannot be done. And when Jesus is in the upper room and he's about to leave, Philip Need some tangible evidence. John chapter 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip is good with calculations. He's bad on faith. Philip is bad on discernment. We already know Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. Josh preached on this just a few weeks ago. If Matthew's reputation hasn't already been shot and known in the community as a corrupt person, even if his reputation wasn't already shot, is this really the person you want to entrust the gospel to, a person who had so recently swindled people out of money? Is this the guy you want to entrust the gospel to? What about Simon, who's called the zealot? Zealots were Hellenistic Jews. Commentators tell us that zealots were a group of Jewish terrorists. They wanted to overthrow Rome. And so these zealots were known to carry small daggers underneath their coat, and they would use them to stab Roman soldiers and centurions in crowds and try to be undetected. Is that really the guy you want to entrust the message of salvation with? 
Do you really want to give supernatural power to a guy like Simon? And then we have Judas Iscariot, the villain of the group, who became a traitor. And quite honestly, we don't know a whole lot about the rest of these apostles. But these are just a few of the personality deficiencies in this group. But listen to this. How often did we hear Jesus talk about their lack of faith? Remember? How often do we hear Jesus refer to these guys as having a lack of faith? We hear it constantly. Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. Remember, they're in the boat. There's a storm going on in Matthew chapter 8. And they came to him and woke him, saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And then we have Peter who's trying to walk on the water and go out to, to see Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew 14, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took a hold of him. And he said to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? So we see Jesus often talking about this group having a lack of faith. We also see Jesus talking about their lack of power. We see to Matthew 17, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Strange scene. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long should, can't you just sense Jesus' frustration at this moment? Like, I cannot believe I chose these guys. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus. They came privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For I truly say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. Jesus talks about the littleness of their faith. He talks the littleness of their power. And then as we watch these apostles and this story unfold, how many times do we see these men arguing, who's the greatest among us? Who's got the most power? Luke chapter 9, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Doesn't that sound like a church that's on its deathbed? It sounds like a church that's on its deathbed. They lack faith. There is no power, right? They lack faith. There is no power. And they're all arguing who's got the most control and who has the most power in the group. And it's as if all of these flaws and faults and this lack of faith and this lack of power and this lack of trust wasn't enough. We know what's going to happen to these great men when things start pressing down on them. They're going to run. They're going to run from Jesus, and guess what? Jesus knew it. Mark chapter 14, and they all left him and fled. The very next scene after Jesus is arrested, we see Peter standing around a fire, and he's cussing and denying that he even knows Jesus. It's not the squad you'd want to start with. But this is who the Lord picks. They have so many faults, so many faults, so many deficiencies. They were all God had to work with. And that's all God ever has to work with. 
That's all God has ever had to work with is faulty people, people who lack spiritual understanding, people who are faulty at doing spiritual work, people who lack faith at times, people who, who lack commitment to pray at times, people who ran when soldiers arrested their Savior, and they're so full of faults and so full of deficiencies, yet Jesus saw through all of them, and he saw to their potential. And so Jesus spends time in prayer, and he saw their ability to change the world. And Jesus takes these apostles, and he loves them, and he trains them, and he invests himself into them, and he transforms them by his love, and he transforms them by the words that he says to them. And today, we're sitting in an auditorium because somebody else was transformed by the love and the words of Jesus today, and they shared it with us. Unusual, common ordinary, uneducated, unimportant nobodies who spent time with Jesus. Acts chapter four says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized, what did they realize? They had been with Jesus. Can I ask you this morning, is Jesus doing anything different than he did in Acts chapter 14? Acts chapter four. Has Jesus changed the way he's changing the world and changing people's lives this morning? There are days when I have questions myself. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reminds me, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Do you know, church, the Lord still picks these type of people? The Lord still picks these types of people. God is still calling unusual men and women who were full of faults to do things that are literally life-changing. God's still picking these types of people, and he's still choosing unusual men and women to do things that are literally life-changing. What do you mean by that? I mean, first of all, to have your life changed. No, it's good. To have your life changed. Second, to be used of God to change somebody else's life. People like Jim Parnell. The world will never, ever know Jim Parnell. The conference circuit will never call Jim Parnell to come speak. The publishers will never approach Jim about writing a book. But God used Jim Parnell to change my life. 1995, as he invested into me as a youth pastor 1995, in January, I gave my life to Jesus Christ because he invited me to come to a weekend where the gospel was going to be preached. And I want to say to us this morning, we have the same mission today. The message has not changed. The mission has not changed. God is still calling unusual men and women to be used in unusual ways to literally change people's life. You know what? You and I both have faults, don't we? You and I both have faults. You and I both have this prone to being, to, to, to lack this commitment. We're prone to doubt our faith at times. I would say most of the time we think we're way more important than we actually are. 
We probably cuss in the face of danger too. And so when Jesus calls you and when he calls me, Jesus took the same risk that he took in Luke chapter 6 when he called these apostles. He selected a weak, lowly, proud, foolish men and women. Jesus probably had to pray all night about some of us. But Jesus sees the potential. Can I say to us this morning as we close out this series, I'm encouraged to know that the Lord uses overconfident, loudmouth, impulsive cowards like Peter. I've got hope this morning to know that God still uses pessimistic, skeptical, cynical people like Thomas. I'm encouraged to know that the Lord still uses judgmental, harsh, intolerant, competitive people like James and John. I believe it's good news today for those of us who are engineers and accountants that the Lord still uses analytical, slow to believe, sight-based, and slow to discern people just like Philip. And I'm also grateful to know today that God can still take people who have a sordid past like Matthew, the tax collector, and can still be used by Jesus. I can identify with a lot of those failures. Can you this morning? I can identify with a lot of those failures this morning. And if you can't identify with them, if you just see me down front, I'll show you which ones you identify with. But we can all identify (laughs) with these failures this morning. God has given us such a tremendous message to steward. He's a great God. At 41, there are days when I just wonder, God, can you still use me? God, can you still use us? I'm encouraged to know that God just doesn't save us. God calls us to something so much greater than ourselves, so much more wonderful than ourselves, and he can use us in ways for his kingdom and his glory, to see people's lives transformed. Jesus takes who we are, what we have, where we are, and he literally uses it to change the world around us. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I I, I really don't know anything about the Bible. I really don't know a whole lot about Jesus. I don't know much about Jesus. What can I say? That's awesome. Because you're just the kind of person that Jesus is looking for. Two years with Jesus, and you're going to be ready to turn the world upside down. He did it with some very dull and uneducated, unimportant nobodies. And I want to say today, he can do the same with you, and he can do the same with us. And he can use us in incredible ways. I want to call us today to unusual sharing and trusting in this next year. I want to call us to unusual sharing and trusting in this next year that we might see more people come to faith in Christ than we've seen in three and a half years. I want to call us to unusual giving in this next year, to see the mission of God go out in our city. I want to call us to unusual sacrifice in this next year to see us be a part of the mission of God that he's established in this city. I still believe that God can use us. He can take us. Maybe today you're wondering, how can God use me? How can God use us? I believe the secret is in Acts chapter 14. And Jesus, the apostles said they had been with Jesus. I want to pray for us this morning. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and we're going to sing one song. Be done today. 
as we close out this series, I want you to be encouraged today. I think there's something in all of us that we have this sense of wanting to be used for something significant, wanting to be a part of something significant. I pray that God would weed out all of those selfish intentions and desires and ambitions in our heart and create a purity in our heart to see God exalted and glorified, magnified, served in our city. I pray that God would use us in tremendous ways. Lord, thank you for today. God, we love you. Jesus, just I pray that you would take us this year. Call us to unusual sharing, unusual trusting. A call us to unusual moments where people can hear the gospel and trust you and be saved this year. God, I pray that you would call us like never before to take our hands off of our resources and put them in your hands, God, for the mission of God. I pray, Jesus, that you would take us this year. Call us to unusual sacrifice to be a part of the mission that you've established in this city to see greater things, Lord. God, thank you for this body. God, three and a half years, it's obvious and evident as we look across the people who are here who have unusually sacrificed, unusually given, unusually shared, God. Let that be us in this coming year, Lord, in such a significant way. We want to be used by you this year. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for salvation. God, thank you that you can see through our faults. You can see through our deficiencies. You can see right to the potential in all of us, Lord, if we would be with you. God, let us be with you this year, this coming year. Be used of you this coming year in unusual ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.